Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the podcast. Rick Roberts here today. I can't wait for you to meet my buddy Dan Rupel. Dan is a CEO of Master Media out there in Hollywood, California. We'll talk about that. He's got some great stories about Bob Barker. He's got some great stories about Carol Burnett. He's got some great stories about David Letterman. I don't even know how I can top this episode, so I'm just not even going to try. This might be the last one ever. He is great. You know, I usually edit these things down to 32 minutes or something like that. But uh, you're going to listen to this to work and on your way back home because I let the whole hour roll with Dan Rupel because there's just a lot of good gold nuggets in here. He's an uh, aged sage and he's got some wisdom that I want you all to glean because I certainly did. I would like to thank our Patreon sponsor for this episode, Shell Baxter. Shell, thank you so much for sponsoring the podcast. I know you've listened for a long time and I've enjoyed getting to know you over these uh, several classes here that we've taken in the past few months online, virtual fun stuff. Uh, You and your group were a lot of fun to hang out with. So super stoked that you're sponsoring the podcast and thank you for that. If you'd like to sponsor the podcast and basically what that is, you can jump on Patreon through School of Laughs forward slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N, learn all about it. You can pledge one time, hey, I like your podcast, here's five bucks, go get you some coffee or you can be an ongoing sponsor of the podcast, and by doing that, at the $7 a month level or higher, you get involved with Club 52, which is kind of a weekly class. You get a short little email with one actionable tip that helps you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And who doesn't want to do that, especially, and even though we are in these COVID times. By the way, hope you're healthy wherever you're at and staying safe out there. All right, let's get into this episode with Dan Rupel. And by the way, Dan and I share... A uh, certain similarities in the beginning of our comedy careers. We both were part of improv groups. Uh, mine was called Midwest Comedy Tool and Die, and we toured the Midwest and sometimes the Southeast. Dan was in a group called Isaac Air Freight, which uh, started out doing comedy in the LA area and then uh, made a transformation into clean Christian comedy, and they would open for huge concerts. They were the biggest thing going for a while. So uh, I'll link to some of their stuff in the show notes too, but I'll talk about that and a whole lot more right now with Dan Rupel. Well, I do have on the line today, Dan Rupel. How's it going, sir? Sir, Rick, come on. How formal. <laughs> How formal. Is that a Southern thing or a, a kind of a respectful thing? <laughs> okay. Okay. I think what it is really, Rick, I think it's just a very polite way of saying you're old. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm joining that group now, man. You are officially a veteran and... Uh, and that brings with it some real wonderful lessons you've learned. And I've listened to your podcast and you're doing just a terrific job. Oh, thanks. Well, you know, I like to kind of dig into like backstories and, and kind of learn about people. And the great thing about uh, this downtime that a lot of people have with COVID is I'm able to grab a few people I normally wouldn't be able to grab a hold of. And I've been thinking about you for the podcast for a long time. And I know you from like 2008 on, but I... You know, I always hear these stories about how you got started and uh, the stuff you did with Isaac Air Freight is fascinating to me. So for people who are listening for the first time, they have no idea who Dan Rupel is besides what I told them in the intro. Uh, tell me how you got involved with doing some comedy and ultimately joining Isaac Air Freight and, and just launching that big thing. Right. Well, I'm going to go back for just a second, all the way till I was five years old. When I was five, I saw the Dick Van Dyke show. And right then, I had my life's aspirations. I mean, they, they, I had it all planned out. I said, I want to work in comedy like Rob Petrie. I want to work in television like Rob Petrie. And I want to have a perky brunette wife like uh, Laura Petrie, who, uh, if you know Peggy, she's a perky brunette. Um, and the Lord's been so gracious to me because I've been able to do all, all three. But I started right then as a real love for comedy. And I knew I had... I, I knew I had a, a natural aptitude. Uh, I, my brother um, was five and a half years older, and he would hang out with his buddies and uh, when we were kids. And at first, his friends didn't want the you know the runt little 
you know, little brother to tag along. But then they discovered, hey, your brother's really funny. He's funny. You know, bring him along. And they would ask for me to join him just because I was, I was funny. So I, I learned real early on I had a real aptitude. But where it really began was in high school. Uh, when I started high school, I took theater arts. And they introduced me to comedy improv. And it was like a revelation. My head was ready to explode. It's like, whoa, you get up on stage and you just make stuff up and people laugh. That's awesome. You know, that was so cool. So what we did is they, uh, in the drama uh, department, they had auditions and they, we formed a, I think it was about a 12 person team troupe. And we did, you know, comedy improv nights uh, in the theater department there. And it went over really well. And I got this crazy idea. And I was only 15 at the time, Rick. I was a kid. And I said, why don't we kind of form a group? And so I, I picked the, like the five, four, inclu including me five, uh, you know, players. And we formed a group. And we started doing local little events and, and like high school assemblies and things like that. And then I got really bold. Um, I heard that this place called the Comedy Store had just opened on Sunset Boulevard and they had uh, they had open mic nights. And now, again, I'm 15. Right. And I said, hey, let's go up there. You know, after school bell rings, let's drive up to Hollywood. Uh, it was only about uh, 40 minutes away from where I live. And we went up there and signed in the for the open mic. And. Um, they would, they would card us, you know, because they served liquor there. And, of course, I was just a 15-year-old kid. And, um, you know, it's really funny. I, I never got caught for, uh, for my age being underage except one time at the comedy store. And they said, I'll tell you what, you can still go on, but you have to go through this back door. You have to climb through the bushes. <laughs> and then you have to go in this back door that goes directly to the stage do your set and then exit that same way and never walk into the bar area. So we, you know, I did that, but anyway, that went on uh, for a number of years, all the way into my college years. And we were starting to be, get really a following and we were opening for Lily Tomlin and we were, um, we were, we were performing with a lot of guys who went on to Saturday night live. Uh, as a matter of fact, I don't know if you know this story, Rick, I don't know if I've ever told you, but in 2000 or no, I'm 2000. Uh, in 1975, Lauren Michaels was getting ready to put a show together called SNL, Saturday Night Live. And he sent a team of scouts out to California to, to go through the comedy clubs and try to find the best sketch groups. And he narrowed it down, they narrowed it down to two groups, my group and Al Franken and Tom Davis. And they chose Al Franken and Tom Davis very wisely. They were older than us. They were better than us. Uh, but still, it was an honor to be on that short list for the very first cast of Saturday Night Live. And um, so anyway, we just continued to do shows and, uh, you know, more and more different clubs and stuff. And then in two, or 1977, um, I was uh, alone in my bedroom and... I just kind of heard this inner voice saying, uh, read your Bible. I had been on kind of a spiritual quest, Rick. I, I kind of trying to figure out what life was all about, um, who, who this Jesus was. And um, I had been looking into different forms of spirituality. But I heard this kind of voice saying, read your Bible. And I had a Bible because my parents, uh, almost at gunpoint, made me go to VBS when I was a kid. <laughs> right. Right. And uh, so anyway, but I, the only thing I remember about VBS was in the Bible was the red stuff was Jesus. So I, I looked for the most red stuff I could find. And that was the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, so I, I read the very first line. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And and I just came undone. I just literally fell on the floor convulsing in tears. And I said, God, I, I don't totally know what this is all about. But whatever it is, I want it. I, I, I think I'm bankrupt in my, my soul. And I, I, I received the Lord that night. And now I had a little bit of a problem because I was in this comedy group that we were doing kind of blue humor, you know, of course, in the clubs. And it wasn't conducive to my newfound faith. So I show up at rehearsal. And this is where the hand of God, the miracle of it was. 
I show up to rehearsal and we were a three man group at that time. And I told my guys, I said, uh, you know, I just received the Lord. I'm a Christian now. And I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, I can't continue with the group. I'm going to leave the group tonight. And I turned to my one partner, Dave, and he says, last week I received the Lord and I was going to leave the group tonight. And then I turned to my third partner, Larry, and he said, last week I rededicated my life to Christ and I was going to leave the group. And we said, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, maybe we can do this as Christians. And that was really how what we, we call now Christian comedy was, was kind of birthed um, in, in my little rundown rental house uh, there. And, um, and we, we wrote our, our first record probably within about a month. You know, I was a baby, baby Christian. And uh, we, we wrote it really quickly. We did a few shows um, uh, at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, which was just the flashpoint of the Jesus movement and Jesus music way back then. We were opening for Keith Green, um, and it just kind of exploded. And pretty soon we're touring all over the country. Our first record came out. Uh, they said, we'll be so happy if it sells 10,000 copies. It sold, uh, our first record sold about 150,000. Uh, we went on to sell about a half million records. And in those days, that was a lot of records. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if you sold 30,000, it was kind of like platinum in those days, you know, so for Christian stuff. And um, anyway, that's, uh, that's what happened. That's awesome. You know, it's funny. I, I started out with an improv comedy group, too, in, in 1990. And as we got into the clubs, the shows got bluer and bluer. And then eventually I kind of rededicated myself. And I told the guys and none of them went on board with me. They all kept <laughs> doing what they were doing. So I kind of leaned more towards my stand-up. Is that when you decided to to move from, from sketch or improv to, to stand-up? Yeah, it was more, I was doing a little bit of both. Because when we would do the shows at the comedy club, uh, there still needed to be an MC, And they, nobody wanted, you know, they didn't have the budget. We kind of took the budget from the headliner feature and MC and, and dispersed it among the five of us that traveled. But I quickly learned that if I went up and received five or 10 minutes, that everything I did in the improv show would be a little bit funnier because they got to know me already. And then I got to get in front of different club owners and managers. And they said, hey, come back on your own sometime. And I started building up my, my stand up simultaneously. But after about seven or eight years with the group, um, financially, it was more smart for me to go do stand up on my own. And then just t t content wise, even though improv is so fun. And I love the the freedom of of just listening and responding as opposed to preparing. Uh, I decided to kind of dedicate to stand up straight up, probably in '99. So, you know, well, you bring up a, a a real good point, and it's one of the real key ro rules of comedy. You you talked about how they got to know you, so they received your sketch uh, or improv a little bit, you know, better. And that that is so true because. You know, we had the added benefit of our albums preceded us. So when we went to a, a city and did a show, they already knew us from the album. So they, they came in liking us. And likability is key. You, you, you know, comedy is an element of play. It's like when we're little kids, we go over to our buddy's house and we say, hey, can you come out and play? And then we we, you know, we, we play cops and robbers or something. We shoot each other and you do a big dying scene. And, uh, you know, that's, that's your way of playing where no one gets hurt, but you're just playing. And that's what an audience does with a comedian. They're playing. It's a volley. You know, I throw out a joke and you laugh back and it comes back and forth. And if you don't like someone, it's hard to laugh with them. So, you know, if somebody gets up on the stage and you just don't like them, you're not very apt to to laugh with them. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's a lot of good stuff in there for sure. There's there's a as a performer, I think all the guys in our group didn't want to go out and do the unfunny stuff of doing the announcements and all those things. But I'm like, you know what? There's no pressure on that guy to be funny. So I would kind of win him over slowly, do four or five minutes of material, and then introduce the group. And like you say, they already knew me a little bit, so everybody else was a stranger after me. I was kind of the guy that they could go to if nothing else was working in their mind like that guy we know him already absolutely i i think they're missing a real strong element uh to not meet the audience or get to know you know warm themselves up to the audience 
Now, I want to get into um, a couple of your television things that I really just know of but don't know the stories behind them. So first off, let's talk about The Price is Right. So you were – was it an executive producer or a supervising producer? So tell – Tell us kind of what the roles are in a TV show, because I'm kind of learning this as I go as well. But so the supervising producer does what? Well, well let me go back a step. In, in, in television, in film, too, uh, there's what they call above the line and below the line. And above the line is, we'll say, the creative or and or business elements. It's, it's the executive producer who is primarily trying to cut the deal for distribution or money raising or those sorts of things. There's the producer who is just overseeing, you know, everything. They're usually hiring the director uh, with the director's counsel. They're casting. Uh, they're, they're putting all the pieces together. Uh, then there's um, various associate directors or producers, I mean. But then there's, there's your creative elements, your, your director, your writer, your actors, um, your uh, set designers, your art directors, your production design, editors, that sort of thing. Okay, then there's the below the line, which is your technical crew. It's your lighting, it's your cameraman, it's your makeup, hair, costuming, it's all those other uh, departments, what they call below the line. So getting back to your original question, what does a supervising producer do? They supervise the production, meaning primarily the below the line, the production elements, but they also, I was the go-between between the above the line and the below the line. I was kind of, you know, I would sit in those meetings on The Price is Right with Bob Barker and the producers and the director, and, and you know, we would talk about what this show was going to be, which games were going to be played, what the prizes were, and then I would say, okay, that affects our cameraman this way, or, you know, the editing's going to be this way, you know, so that's that's really what you do. Gotcha. And how long did you do that for? Uh, Ten years, and it was such a joy. Um, I, I, I'm still, I'm still family with. I had a hundred people on the crew under me, and um, I, I'm still kind of family with all of them. Uh, when you work every day on a show for ten years, you know, you see, you know, people are having babies, people are getting married. Sadly, people are getting divorces. You know, you go through all the ups and downs of life together um, and you, you really, you know, get, get real close to each other. And I want to mention something. Um, when I came into Price is Right, um, the Lord told me day one, uh, have a touch point with every single person uh, under, you know, your supervision every single day. And that means from Bob Barker all the way down to, you know, uh, a, 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 an usher who brings in the, the audience, you know, and I did that. I did that every day. In fact, I used to make fun of me because I would do this every single morning. I'd come into the studio and I would walk counterclockwise around the entire studio. And I would just, you know, sometimes it would just be, Hey, how you doing today? But other times it'd be, Hey, did your son win his little league game last night? Or, you know, I just heard your, your wife is struggling with, with cancer or something. You know, I would, just, I would just show that I saw them, I cared, that they were of value to the production. And what happened was um, it just became a really, uh, just a wonderful climate, you know, where people enjoyed coming to work. They, it, it was just a real wonderful atmosphere to do production. And production's hard work. And if you're having a good time with friends, it makes it so much better. But I tell you that, Rick, not because I'm such as this great guy, but it was kind of the formula that got me Letterman. Um, three years later, I'd been doing Prices Right for about three years, and David Letterman, you know, left the, the late night at NBC and signed on uh, to do the late show for CBS. And he was in New York, of course, at the Ed Sullivan Theater. And he sent a couple of his producers out and uh, to, to where I worked at Television City in L.A. and said, Dave wants to do a couple weeks of shows in L.A. And, you know, here's the dates he wants to do. We need a studio, obviously. And they said, and we would like Dan Ruppel to be the supervising producer. And my boss said, how do you even know him? <laughs> you know, I'd only been there three years. There are other guys in my department that have been there for 20 or 30 years. 
And they said, well, we heard that his crews are just, it's really a nice atmosphere on his set. And so that's how I got Letterman. And, um, and it was, it was just, it was, oh man, as a comedian, it was, it was a kid in a candy store to be working with, you know, Letterman, you know. And uh, so it was such a joy when he would come out and we'd do the shows. And I used to, I would able, I was able to go out on all of his interstitials. He would do like uh, an interstitials, a, a roll in video, like, um, you know, he would send Rupert out uh, from Hello Deli, and I would do all those with Rupert. In fact, just a side note, I'm still very close friends with Rupert today. How's he doing? <laughs> Every once in a while, I wonder about him. He's still there at the Hello Deli. It's outside of uh, the Ed Sullivan Theater still where uh, Stephen Colbert does his show. But, um, you know, I, I have lunch with him, uh, stop there every time I'm in New York. Uh, but, um, but I was able to do that. I was able to do some of the funnest things with Dave. You know, he would... One time uh, I got a call from the producer uh, and he said, hey, we need uh, tomorrow morning uh, by 7 a.m. We need uh, 3,000 Taco Bell tacos. (laughs) And I said, "Okay." so I call up all these Taco Bells and I said, I need I called three different ones. And I said, I need a thousand tacos uh, at seven in the morning. And of course, they said no way. You know, we don't open till 10 and there's no way we're going to try to get 3000 tacos. And I said, it's for David Letterman. Oh, okay. <laughs> and suddenly they were all on board. So what we did is, is Dave loaded the back of a convertible, uh, with, uh, tacos and he got a bullhorn. He drove up and down the residential streets of Beverly Hills and he would say, get your dog. And he would, he would throw tacos on their lawns like you would a newspaper, you know. So we did all sorts of things like that that were so fun. I mean, we just had a blast. And um, so anyway, I just had a great time. I loved, I did a number of weeks in L.A. I did shows uh, for Dave in San Francisco. Um, I also did a lot of roll-ins uh, without Dave that we would do celebrities here in Hollywood, uh, you know, that they would roll in the show. And, uh, anyway, it was just, it was, it was a fun, you know, eight or nine years with, with Dave. Oh man. I remember so many of those little side things he would do. Uh, you know, when you're talking about Taco Bell, it reminded me he would, he would go through a drive. He would have somebody go through a drive through and he would be on the little earpiece telling them what to say, which is a hundred percent what the impractical jokers are doing today. Basically, somebody feeding them the lines and they have to say it. But those always cracked me up. Yeah, yeah. He was, he, he was, he was, he is, I shouldn't say was, he still is. He is so quick and so brilliant, so smart. Um, it's just amazing how, how quick he is. Have you seen any of his new series on Netflix? Yeah, I love him. I love him. Yeah, he's definitely got the more, more time. And uh, I just like his intuitiveness. And, and there's so few shows where, the interviewee gets to say what they're trying to say in its entirety before being interrupted by somebody. And he doesn't interrupt. He, he hears it and has a follow-up question almost every time. That's the most important thing of interviewing. Um, I, and I used, I, used to, uh, I used to teach at Biola University. I used to teach comedy writing, and then I would ta- teach uh, intro to, to the major, to the film and television major. And sometimes they would talk about, well, I'm going to do an interview show. And one of the, the, you can always tell a rookie interviewer by that they, they're not listening. They are so married to the next question that they ask a question. And then while the person's answering it, they, they're reading what the next question is. Well, what happens when you do that is you are missing what they might be answering that might be really intriguing. You know, you'll, you'll ask somebody like, um, well, you know, how'd you get started in comedy? And then they say, well, actually, uh, I, I found the cure for cancer. And, uh, and then you go, so what was your first gig? You know, it's <laughs> right. like, wait a minute. He <laughs> just told you he found the cure to cancer. Follow up on it. And, you know, I think, too, when, when you ask a question, especially your, your very first question of an interview, if you listen close, you'll hear what the guest really wants to tell you anyway. Yeah, Exactly. Because they almost have uh, the reverse happen sometimes. Like, I've got to promote this, or I've got to say this, or this is what's ha- funny to me. But if you don't lead them into it, they're going to get there no matter what. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that, because I learned really early on um, how to control an interview. 
Now, I don't have to do with you, Rick. First of all, you're a friend. And second of all, you, you, you have a real natural ability to just have a conversation. You know, I don't feel when I listen to your podcast or what we're doing right now, or when I've also talked to you at other times, that it's, it's a force scripted thing. We're just talking. But what I found early on with Isaac Air Freight, you know, whenever we'd go into a town, they'd have us on the local radio station courses way before social media and podcasts, et cetera. But they'd always have us on the radio. And in many of these smaller radio stations, the, the radio host was, was a real novice or, or real inexperienced. And in fact, I remember one time, uh, the person goes, we have here in the studio, Isaac Air Freight. And, um, uh, tell us about yourself. And so we kind of tell him a little bit about ourselves. And then he, this is what he said. He goes, talk more. <laughs> <laughs> and so, well, we did this and this and this. Talk more. <laughs> and he just, that's all he did. Talk more or keep going or, you know, he never asked another question. So you learn really early on, you have to kind of control the conversation and take it where you need it to go to communicate. Now, I don't have anything to push, you know, I, I don't have a new CD, I don't, you know, I don't have a show, but, uh, you know, you, you need to kind of get in what you need to talk about and, and really, because sometimes, and, and it's, it's sometimes it's not that they're, they're inexperienced as an interviewer, sometimes it's just they, they don't know what is really important. And like you said, the, the interviewee will bring up what's really the important part. You know, it's like you asked about this, but the real important part is this part. Right, right. And did you find too, because we had this problem with our group, we were a troop of five guys. We go into a radio station. They nev never had five comedians in a room. They've only got two mics at best on the other side of the, the desk, but they would not even know how to pair us up. So they would be looking at one person, trying to get a question to the other person. We just kind of learned over time to, to give them one question to ask us. And we would take it from there, and especially promoting a comedy show. We would have to get right into a bit and just let them react instead of trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, we, we were, it was easier for us. We were together for 15 years um, as Isaac Airfreight. The last seven or eight years, it was a two-man group. So that made it very easy. Gotcha. Um, I wanted to hear a story, just maybe something Bob Barker um, either said to you or you noticed just from observing him that left a, a, an impression on you over, you know, even today, you, you, when you think of Bob Barker, you kind of think of this phrase or this action that he took. Well, for, first of all, um, he, he is so brilliant. Um, people sometimes make fun of game show hosts. They, they it's like they're the, you know, game show host is like the bottom feeder of the uh, talent chain. You know, uh, it is so hard. It is such a hard job. And watching, I produced uh, oh, probably like 13, 1400 shows. And to see him do that many hours of television and very rarely was there an edit. I mean, he just, he just did not make mistakes. In fact, we would do little, little promos where they would, they would be, he had, he had to give all this verbiage in 30 seconds and they didn't even have to put a clock on him. He would just, boom, he would end it at 29 seconds. Wow. It's like he had this internal clock, but what is so amazing about him is you, everybody knows the price is right. Okay. The, here's what he's got to do in about Oh, I don't know what the clock would be. Somewhere between 20 and 30 seconds. There's a guy in Bitter's Row. He just, he's the closest to the thing, so he gets to come up on stage. Okay, in the time that guy comes up on stage, Bob Barker has to somehow have a touch point with that contestant. He has to pull something out of him or her that will endear that contestant to the audience because they got to be rooting for him. Then he's got to explain the rules of the game they're going to play. Then he has to pitch it to the, to the product, you know, the gift, you know, the prize, whatever it is, the announcer. He's got to do all those elements in about 20 to 30 seconds. And he's the master. You know, Alex Trebek, who just passed away, 
he was another master. Uh, being a game show host at the network level is hard work. And Barker was just so brilliant at it. On more of a personal level, Barker, um, if he respected you, he was great. He was, he was really just, he was, he was in your corner. If he didn't, he didn't suffer fools lightly. You know, he would just kind of, he wasn't mean. Right. He just, he just didn't really want to have much to do with you if he didn't respect you. Uh, I was very fortunate. From day one, he respected me. And as a matter of fact, whenever there was uh, some negative news that we had to tell Barker, like he asked for something, but we couldn't get it. They would always ask me to tell him because he likes you, Dan, you tell him. So, you know, I, but I had a very good relationship with him. He was very kind to me. Um, as you probably know, Rick, uh, my wife, Peggy, uh, has many bouts with cancer. And um, every time she was hospitalized, he was the first one to send flowers. David Letterman was too. David Letterman would send flowers. Uh, in fact, it was kind of humorous. She was a, uh, she had to have a, a major uh, cancer surgery at UCLA Medical Center. And the first two uh, bouquets of flowers that arrived, one was from Bob Barker and one was from David Letterman. And so <laughs> all the nurses thought we were rock stars, you know, <laughs> right. it's like, no, we're just, we're just average Joes, you know, but, uh, you know, but no, they, Barker was, was really, really kind to me. And, um, uh, anyway, I have, I have nothing but fondness for him. They probably thought Peggy was a, a star that they didn't like somehow flew under the radar. Like this lady must be super, you famous. know, again, back to Letterman, Dave ha has a bad back. And um, before every show, he would have a masseuse in his dressing room who would work on his back to loosen him up enough. But um, he would, if, if you watch some old reruns, uh, if a guest uh, comes to hug him, he will grab their hands and hold them down at their sides. That's how he greets them. He, he rarely did someone beat him to get a hug in. Because he that that is I, I think it's it's how he injured his back, but I, I I might be wrong in that, but I do know that it would always cause more more pain for him. So he wasn't a hugger, and he would he would do that to uh, alleviate the pain. Interesting. Hey, he also here's another thing, Rick. Please, you've been in New York in the summer, like August. It's it's hot. The cameraman at the Ed Sullivan Theater would wear. Um, they would, they would wear, uh, you know, heavy, heavy winter jackets in August because Dave Letterman liked to have it 39 degrees in the studio. There's something about him. And if you watch old, uh, re reruns of the late uh, show, it, 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 while the credits are rolling at the end, as soon as he says, good night, everybody, he stands up, takes his coat off. It's 39 degrees in the Ed Sullivan Theater, but he's freezing, or he's so hot. He gets so hot. Now, cut, cut to uh, San Francisco. I was doing shows at the Fa Palace of the Fine Arts. We're doing it in February. The Palace of the Fine Arts in San Francisco is right on the shore of San Francisco Bay. You can, I mean, you can, you feel like you can reach out and touch the Golden Gate Bridge. So they're famous for winds, cold winds in February. Now, the, the Palace of Fine Arts is just a shell of a building. It doesn't have a light grid. It doesn't have uh, any kind of air conditioning. But I thought, no problem. You know, it's, it's on the bay and in February. And what I so I hired an air conditioning company to snorkel the building with just a little bit of air conditioning because I knew Dave wanted it 39 degrees. So anyway, they, they come out. It's 81 degrees that week and no wind in San Francisco in February. Okay, it's an oven in the, uh, in the uh, theater. So I call the air conditioning company and I say, hey, you know, you've got two snorkels going. We, the, the building looked like an octopus. Uh -huh. It had two snorkels. I said, you need, we need like five more, uh, you know, snorkels. We, we got to just pump as much cold air into this thing as we can. So we did, we did. And they were just doing it. And they got it down to about 49. And I have to walk into Dave's dressing room and I said, Dave, I'm, I'm really sorry. Uh, it's 81 degrees out. 
and the lowest I could get it is 49. And I'm kind of, you know, biting my lip. It's like, oh, is, you know, is he going to be really mad at, or disappointed at me? And he was. He goes, oh, hey, thanks so much. That's a good job. That'll be fine. That'll be fine. Thank you. You know, he was, he was great about it. But it was, it was like, oh, man, dodge the bullet there. Yeah. You, know, you, you always give the star what they want. Yeah, and I always heard it. You know, the the cold theater kept audiences on their edge. It, it kept them attentive, and pro- probably to a point in the back in those days, the equipment was pretty hot and the lights and stuff. So that was probably the other part of it. Before digital cameras, it was they had to really have hot you know lights on. So absolutely. And you said Palace of Fine Arts. I found myself when I heard when I heard you say that. I'm like, I don't know if I can say that without reversing it and probably really embarrassing myself. <laughs> You know, today you're doing uh, different stuff. You're, you're a CEO of uh, Master Media. And I just kind of want you to tell people what that is and what you do now, because I've found that over the years, everything that you've done in the past prepares you for the next thing, whether you know what that next thing is or not. So what is it that you're doing now, and, and how is that drawing upon the skills that you developed earlier on? I, I am I am so um, grateful to the Lord right now that I get to do what I do, because it touches on every skill that I have and every experience I've learned from. Uh, it's kind of the culmination of what I'm doing now. Master Media, uh, it's, it's 35 years old. It was founded in 1985. I came, the uh, founder, uh, Dr. Larry Poland, uh, retired five years ago, and I came in as the new CEO. And what Master Media is, it's a, a Christian outreach to the mainstream media uh, world. Um, we serve as a, we call it uh, serving as a, a, a trusted voice of faith to the media leaders and cultural influences in the entertainment industry. And what that means is we form relationships with all the studio heads, the network presidents, um, you know, the heads of all the streaming platforms. Now we form relationship uh, where they can really hear what the concerns or the uniquenesses are of the Christian audience. Um, and then we also, as we do form more and more of a trusted relationship, uh, they open up personally to us and we ask if we can pray for them and we never leave an office without asking to pray for them and no one's ever turned us down. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, sometimes the higher they are, uh, in position wise in the industry, um, the more they covet prayers and, um, you know, I think it's so important the kind of work we do because, see, right now the the industry is a lot different than it was when I first started in it. Of course, you know, when I first started, there were uh, six film studios, there were three TV networks, and um, and of course, there's no online anything. Um, so if you could go around to those six heads of, I mean, nine heads of, of studios and networks and form relationship. Uh, you really kind of canvass the entire media spectrum. Well, today there's there's thousands uh, with all the digital platforms, the cable platforms, the streaming platforms, everything. And um, so the audience is fragmented. You know, back in, in the day, a, a show like Bonanza could get 60 to 80 million viewers. Now, if you get 1 million viewers on a cable show, man, that's that's a big show you know, you've done really well because the audience is fragmented. So what it, what that means is all the different communities in America, they are trying to catch the ear of those different studio leaders uh, to say, hey, represent my community on your shows because we have a big audience. And whoever is is maybe sometimes loudest in those rooms is the community that gets represented. And some very often the missing community is the Christian community. And we're the largest community in America. And um, depending on how you define a a Christian, but you know, uh, we're probably two thirds of America, you know? And um, so that's what we do as master media. We have relationships. I have a team in new Hollywood team in New York. We were this year, COVID set us back, but we were looking to form a team in uh, Atlanta. Uh, we're still working on that online. but um, So we just form relationships with them and let them know uh, the Christian community is one of, of a lot of very um, thoughtful people, kind people, good people. And uh, we're not a bunch of only uh, people who are just boycotting or angry. 
you know, because because you put out that show. We also uh, we really appreciate good programming and 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 positive programming and life affirming programming, and uh, so that's what I do. But getting back to what you first said, Rick, about how the Lord everything you do or you walk through in life, the Lord is is shaping you to prepare you for the next assignment he's called you to. And I could not do what I'm doing right now um, without my many years in, in the Christian marketplace with Christian comedy uh, and performing and producing records, etc. cetera, uh, without all those years of producing television at the network level, all my years, we didn't even touch on it, in digital media, I produced 150 comedy videos for the digital space. I served as a consultant to many different, uh, five different internet television companies uh, without that background. And then as well as I'm an ordained pastor, I've been on four different pastoral staffs. So without all that, those things in the mix, I couldn't have the kinds of conversations that I'm, I'm holding uh, with, with media leaders and filmmakers. And uh, But what really excites me beyond meeting with the, the leaders of today is we also say we're an a, a encouraging voice of experience to the next generation. Because uh, Peggy and I, that's my wife, Peggy, um, we spoke at 16 universities last year in their film schools, um, you know, really trying to encourage the next generation of, of Christian filmmakers who are entering the mainstream space which is, I believe, where we're really going to change the game culturally by uh, telling f- stories of faith in the, in the mainstream space. And what we do, Rick, uh, what, what our, the uh, heart of our message is, is, and this applies to comedians too, you have to realize we are no longer living in a Christian nation. We are living in, we're, we're, we're no longer priests in Jerusalem, we're exiles in Babylon. Um, and we have to look at our culture in America as a post-Christian culture. And you look at the, you look at the book of Daniel, and the way Daniel uh, succeeded and ascended to the top position, same Joseph, too. Um, the re- way he did it, it says in the book of Daniel three times that Daniel did it with excellence. He was excellent in what he did. But it also says that he was a man of strong Christian convictions. Well, not Christian, but Judeo, we'll say. Convictions where he wouldn't drink from the king's cup. He wouldn't bow to the idols. He wouldn't compromise his faith. And that's what I tell film students. That's what I tell comedians. You've heard me share this at the CCA. To tell comedians, you've got to be the best of the best, especially if you're going to play in the mainstream. Because, this, you know, Hollywood, man, where I live, the best of the best in the world come to Hollywood. So you're, you're, you're on a high level and you've got to be a lot, a high level. You've got to be the the best. And, um, and then you also don't drink from the King's cup, which I always look on in, uh, in the media industry uh, terms as fame and fortune. So many people think that I'll get into comedy or I'll get into this for fame and fortune and man, those are those those aren't really uh, good mistresses. <laughs> you don't want to go after that. Uh, I, I could I, I, there are countless uh, uh, big famous rich actors I talk to or actresses who are so lonely and miserable, and they'd give anything to have uh, a forty-two year marriage like I have. You know, they they'd give their Oscar up for that. You know. Uh, don't go after that. Go after uh, a, a life of purpose, a life of significance, where you're really making a, a name for your, uh, or a, a difference in somebody else's life. And it may not be uh, in your act. It may be around the bar, you know, in a club. You know, I wasn't in Letterman, in Price is Right. I wasn't in front of the camera. I wasn't a writer on Letterman. Where I had my effect, my ministry, if you will, was was off camera. You know, it was over by the the craft services where a, a stage manager would come up and say, "Hey, my I just found out my wife has cancer. Can you pray for for her?" That's where the ministry takes place. We have to be among them. Uh, you know, we're called to dwell among them, like you know Jesus did in John one. Uh, you know, 
that's the difference we can make. And I am so excited when I see these young filmmakers coming from the Christian University film programs. They are so good in their craft. They're making some really amazing films. And, but they love Jesus, and they see that I just want to bring the kingdom. I want to bring virtues of the kingdom in my script, in my storytelling, and I want to make a difference for, for God's kingdom. And it's, it's encouraging. And then getting back specifically to the CCA, you know, I, I told you all those years I was at Letterman. Well, I'll tell you, um, our good friend, you know, Tim Hawkins, there wasn't a comedian on, on Letterman that's any better than Tim Hawkins or Michael Jr. or many others. That, that are in the CCA. You know, I, I am so proud of the quality of, the, of some of the top comedians at the CCA. They, they can be, they can, you know, hold their head high with anybody. And uh, that's what we need to do. And that's one of the, the original tenets of the CCA was that we would improve our craft to excellence. A lot of good stuff in there. Well, no, I, just, I just get passionate about this stuff because, you know, I've been in the industry for 42 years. I, man, I see the difference it, uh, someone can make who is just full on out for the Lord, but also, man, they are so good at their craft. You know, God gives the gifting, but we just we just work hard on our talents. We just work really hard to make it the best we can make it. And you, you, you were one of those, Rick. I know how hard you work in shaping a, a joke, you know, structuring it where you you say it one night and it's like, eh, that was good, but no, it can be better. And you tweak it. You maybe change an adjective or you take a word out or you, you pause at the right time or you do all those little things that you do in comedy and suddenly it's, or you just have a different expression or gesture uh, and it just makes all the difference, but you're always tinkering to make it better and better and better. And that's what it takes. What, what would you say to somebody who, and thanks for the compliment. But what would you say to somebody who thinks they're doing it in excellence, but they're not? Like, I'm not sure that you can break through that facade they have around what their act really is. But there's there's people that hit a certain level, whatever that level is, and they they just stay there forever, and they expect better results than they're getting, but they're not putting in the work. Is is there some kind of litmus test or challenge you would give those people to to really see if they're as excellent in craft as they think they are? Well, I think one thing you could do is go to a hostile audience. <laughs> we have our, our safety net, especially when we're playing in to church audiences who are so gracious. Um, you know, they won't, they won't be the, um, you know, like the American Idol where they'll tell you you stink, you know. <laughs> They'll, they'll give you really positive stuff, even when you're not. And it can kind of lull you into this, this idea that you're a lot better than you are, or maybe your specific, you know, fan base who you can kind of do no wrong. They're just fans. But if you kind of come, go out of your comfort zone and play to a place that maybe doesn't care for you uh, right off the bat, uh, um, you know, try that occasionally and just see how well you do. And that's, you know, see, I'm very thankful for all those years in the comedy clubs. And I don't say this, I don't say this arrogantly, um, but when we finally became Christians and we started playing, we were good. And we, were, we weren't good because we're, we're so great. We're good because we had worked on it for seven years in the comedy clubs. And we, you know, like you were talking, we had beer bottles thrown at us. We had stuff thrown at us. Um, we were, oh, we learned real quick not to do rock shows. <laughs> you know, it's like when they came, you know, oh, we want to rock. You know, when they want to hear rock <laughs> music, the last thing they want is a comedy show where you got to listen. And so we learned real quick, don't do those. Um, but, you know, you learn all those things through, you know, night after night playing the clubs and sometimes drunken audiences and, um, you know, for, for all those years. And that's why when the Lord did shift us to comedy, Christian comedy and we were playing churches and then we were playing universities, then we were playing, you know, like Disneyland and, you know, those kinds of places. And then we were playing the festivals where this is before big screens. And, uh, you know, we would be, you know, 
50,000 people at a, a you know, festi- Christian music festival in um, Pennsylvania uh, or Florida, um, you know, you had to be really good. Uh, and thankfully, we were already kind of had our chops together, you know, by that time. That's great. No, I, I agree. I think a challenging audience or, you know, go head to head in a showcase, you know, try to surround yourself or get your foot in the door with, with higher caliber talent and see how you stack up. Definitely one way you want to to kind of see where you stand. Now, what about, and this may be my last question, but the um, the flip side of that, where you, you've got excellence, you've, you, you know that you're stacking up well against others. For all the independent speakers or comedians listening, how do you promote that without sounding cocky? So that's, that's really hard. And I talk to, in, in what I'm doing with Master Media, I talk to a lot of actors and actresses. Um, and it's so hard because they, they struggle as Christians. It's like, man, I don't want to be self-promoting. I don't want it to be all about me. And I'm supposed to walk in humility before the Lord. And first of all, I, I think we, we, we don't want a false sense of meekness or, or whatever. We should be proud of the gifts that God has given us, the talents he's given us. Um, we should also realize that, um, you know, I, I worked hard in, in this, so I, I am good at what I do. And I can say that without arrogance. It's same as a doctor. A doctor studies for many years, and he can say, I'm a good doctor. And that's not arrogance. That's just a statement of fact. But here's the real dilemma with a comedian, an actor, an actress, a speaker, whatever. The product is you. You're not selling an iPhone. You're selling you. You are selling Rick Roberts, you know? So you've got to promote yourself. So what you do is, in an inter- especially if you have time for like an interview like we're doing, um, you, you walk in humility, you're humble, but also be very proud of, hey, I've got a show. I've got a show Saturday night. I think you're going to have a lot of fun. I think you're going to have, be excited about it. Because if you put yourself in what the audience is going to get out of it, as opposed to, I want your money. (laughs) I want you to fill the place so the promoter has me back. That's self-serving. But you are saying, I want to serve the audience with the gifts that God has given me and that I have really worked hard to make good. So now you've shifted the tables. So I can very proudly get on, let's say you're doing a radio interview or a podcast and say, hey, if you're not doing anything Saturday night, you should come. I think you're going to have a great time. I think you're really going to have a good time. I don't think you'll regret it. Tickets are only this. You know, hey, get out, bring the wife, bring the, you know, whatever it might be. And I think you're going to really, really enjoy yourself. If you can say that in confidence where the, the listener is going, yeah, that might be fun. That might be fun. And make it about them. Then it works. You know, and I say the same thing to actors and actresses. When you go in for an audition, I know you're, you're, really, ta- you're, you're really struggling because you don't want to make it all about you. But just tell the director, I think I can really bring a lot to this role. I, I, think, I'm, I'm, I think I'm good to work with. I think I have a good attitude. I'm really excited about this film. I'm really excited about this script. If you make it about them, you know, man, oh, I want to have that comedian. I want to have that speaker. I want to have that actor, you know, and it's about them. Focusing more on the results and the benefits of the performance as opposed to look at me, I'm a great performer, helps them see it in the way that they want to see it in the first place. So you kind of answer their question before they even ask it and give them the answer that they're looking for. And it's truthful. It's not like you're trying to sell them something like if it's not going to be a good show, I don't want 300 people to show up and find out it's not a good show or 3000. So you got to have the confidence in your abilities, but also really the perspective shift, you know, almost, you know, almost like a business. You're just seeing it from the needs of the client, which is the audience. Yes, it is. It is. It's always about them. It's always about what, how you can serve them. You know, Let's go back to the scriptures. Jesus said, if you want to be great, be the servant of all. And it's the same way. It's even the same way in comedy. If you want to be great, be the servant of all. Serve your fans. Love your fans. 
um, you know, tell them, tell your people who don't know you, I think you're gonna have a great time. Are, are, has it been a hard week? Come to, come Saturday night, you're gonna laugh. I think you're gonna have a good time. You know, it, it make it all about them. And, uh, it, and, you know, you look at it, you look at superstars, you know, like a Garth Brooks. Garth Brooks isn't the greatest singer in the world, but he loves his audience maybe better than anybody. And he gives his audience the greatest time. And he's the, one of the biggest superstars of all time, you know, because he's serving his, his fans. And he hangs out. There's legendary stories of how he'll sit, you know, hang out afterwards till two in the morning signing autographs, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, make it about your, your, your audience. Great. And lastly, I just want to let people know, I think they've listened this far. They enjoyed the conversation. You have conversations with lots of people in Hollywood on your life off screen web series and podcast with your wife, Peggy, who you've mentioned a few times. I think people will get a lot out of dialing up some of those on YouTube and checking them out. Um, I just watched this morning, the one with Tim Hawkins. I thought you guys, you know, you're natural friends. So you have a lot of, uh, chemistry anyway, but I just thought the conversation was good and fluid and, uh, you know, inspiring on a lot of elements and also just intriguing, you know, digging in somebody's career that's had a lot of success and how do they handle that? I thought Tim had some great perspectives on that as well. But um, do you have another favorite episode outside of Tim and his wife? Yeah, well, man, all of them. We have had so much fun. Uh, you know, the it's, it's called Life Off Screen because we focus more on their life off screen. Um, and we talk to a lot of producers, screenwriters, actors, uh, musicians, uh, comedians in, in Tim's case. We also uh, recently had um, uh, one of our last episodes, uh, Corey Edwards and his wife, Vicki. Uh, Corey is a, is a stand-up. He's also a, a film producer. He did uh, Hoodwinked, which was a huge hit animated uh, comedy. Um, uh, so we've really enjoyed all of it. But what, what is so fun about it is we their spouse joins them and so you get to talk about not only the craft we did like you mentioned with tim we talked about comedy and the craft uh life on the road but you get also kind of pull the curtain behind you know the man behind the curtain so to speak and you know talk about how you raise kids how you you know keep your marriage going while you're on the road a lot and all these different things so um but uh there's just a i don't know it's hard to pick i have had so many fun ones uh, one of my favorites, in fact, it was so good, we made it a two-parter, was with uh, Squire Rushnell and his wife, Louise Duarte. And they're both really kind of rock stars in the industry. Squire, um, he's a, a, a TV producer, and he was also a, a network executive, but he created uh, Schoolhouse Rock, uh, mm-hmm. which we all grew up with, or you, your generation grew up with. I'm a little bit older than that, but I... Uh, my kids listened to Schoolhouse Rock, and um, so he 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 was he was fabulous uh, guest. He talked a lot, but the other one, uh, my old friend Louise Duarte, who I know way back, uh, she did. Uh, uh, Isaac Air had a TV show for a while uh, called uh, the Isaac Air Show, and it was a Saturday Night Live format. And she was one of our players. Oh. And Louise is a impressionist. She's been on Hollywood Squares and countless other shows. And her idol is Carol Burnett, and she does an impeccable Carol Burnett. Well, um, they 15 years ago, Harvey Corman and Tim Conway wanted to do a kind of like a Carol Burnett touring show. They wanted to do a live show, but they needed a Carol Burnett because Carol wasn't going to tour with them. And uh, they did auditions, and they hired Louise Duarte. So Louise Duarte shares stories of 15 years on the road with Tim Conway and Harvey Corman. And uh, so that was a great episode. So Squire Rushnell and his wife, Louise Duarte. That sounds great because Carol Burnett's definitely one of my favorites too. So anybody that stepped into her shoes in any kind of way and, and pulled that off with those two guys, that's got to be something. Do you have time for a quick story about uh, Carol Burnett? Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, she... Carol Burnett did the Carol Burnett show on Studio 33, which is the same studio I did Prices Right on. Uh, they would they would roll the set pieces out for uh, Prices Right and roll in Carol Burnett. Now Carol Burnett was before I started at CBS, but still she hung out. She was at CBS a lot, and I uh, in fact I was supervised a couple of her reunion shows 
she did, uh, where she brought in the whole gang, you know, Vicki Lawrence and Lyle Wagner and everybody. But um, one time uh, I had these friends uh, visiting me on The Price is Right from Colorado. And they, they called me and said, can you give me a tour, us a tour of uh, CBS? So I did. I took him, I mean, it's four-story building. I took him to every studio, every makeup room, every nook and cranny of the entire building. And then I'm walking him to the elevator to say goodbye. And they, they point over to this corner and they go, hey, what are those two rooms over there? And I said, oh, those are just rehearsal halls. They're, what they are is they're, they're blank four walls, nothing's in them, and they're just cedar block walls, and people go in there, and they they rehearse, you know, and um, that's it. There's nothing to see. And they said, well, could you show them to us? This way, when we go home, we can say we literally saw everything, right? And I said, sure, sure, I'll do that. So as we're walking over there to the rehearsal halls, um, Janelle, the wife, she says, Dan, do you see a lot of stars around here? I said, well, of course. It's a working studio. I see people all the time. And she goes, have you ever seen Carol Burnett? And I said, oh, yeah, Carol's here an awful lot. She's, she's here a lot. So we go. We, now we get to the, uh, to the doors. I barge into this rehearsal hall, and there's Carol Burnett, Tim Conway, Bob Mackey, who does her gowns, and the director. His name was Bob, the director. And I'm, oh man, I just barged in on him. And I, I start to close it. I go, I am so sorry. And Carol Burnett goes, come in, come in, come in. She calls us in. She pulls out three folding chairs. And she says, here, sit. We're going to do a sketch for you, me and Tim. Tell us if you think it's funny. They did this sketch. Of course, <laughs> I mean, we are practically wet in our pants. I mean, right, right. Tim Conway is one of the funniest people on the planet, and Carol Burnett is the consummate pro. She can do anything. And to see them, and we're like six feet away, it was, it was unbelievable. But my point is, she was so kind and so humble. And that's, but still, here, think of it, Rick. She's a, a, that, you can't get higher than Carol Burnett on the comedy food chain. You know, and she still wanted that feedback. She's still talking, going back to what we were saying about excellence. She was still saying, is this funny? Because as you know, you, you write a joke, but I always say with comedy, it's not funny till somebody laughs. You know, we can sit with pen and paper and go, oh, that's killer. That's gold. That is so funny. But it's not funny until somebody laughs at it. And Carol Burnett, at, at such a high level of accomplishment, she's still doing that. She's still saying, was, was that funny? Was that funny? And wow, I learned a lot that afternoon, <laughs> as well as just how kind she was. I mean, what a great way to wrap up today, man. I, I would love to have been there to get that private performance from somebody at such a high caliber. And I'm sure your friends on the way out were like, he probably planned that. He probably had her. <laughs> they, yeah, right. That's what my friends did think. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us your time. And if anybody wants to find out more about Dan, I'll have all the information in the show notes and definitely check out his web series as well. Thanks, sir. Thank you, Rick. It's totally my pleasure. I've really enjoyed being with you. What did I tell you? Some great stories in there. I love David Letterman. I love uh, Bob Barker and I love Carol Burnett. So just to hear some stories uh, about him interacting with those folks and just the behind the scenes of working on a TV set like that. He did a couple of really cool jobs and uh, hanging out with Rupert from David Letterman over at the Hello Deli. How cool is that? I don't know if y'all young folks know what I'm talking about, but Rupert, he was the man on David Letterman, would always come over with a big old sandwich and uh, David stop in there and ask some questions or have Rupert do some man on the street stuff. Always funny. Anyway, that's Dan Rupel. I'll link to his podcast, his web series. I guess it's kind of both. So you can listen to it or watch it however you like. I'll link to all that in the show notes. And you can always find out more about all these episodes at schooloflabs.com. And by the way, I'm just going to say this because I don't know if people realize this. You know, the website isn't just a place where I host a podcast. The podcast does live there. But there is so many episodes of the podcast that you can 
search through. Like you can go to the search tool on the website from the homepage and search any comedy topic, whether it's writing, performing, the business of comedy, stage fright, uh, writing tips. Uh, you can search like dry bar comedians or David Letterman comics. Anything like that will pull up the corresponding episodes and then you know exactly uh, which ones to listen to to get the answer to some of your most uh, most frequently asked questions. So jump on there and while you're on there you can sign up for the insider tip sheet which goes out monthly with recaps from the podcast and sometimes some extra goody goodies in there for you like that goals tracker we did this year and last year and the year before and the year before that. All right. Hey, again, thanks to Shell Baxter for supporting us through Patreon. And that's going to be it for this one. You guys stay safe and, and stay, 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 stay funny. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit SchoolofLaughs.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay money.